It's been decades since the last time the Defense Department took an in-depth look at how its contract policies affect the financial health of the defense industrial base. That long-awaited report is now out. Meanwhile, a separate outside study is examining what DOD needs to do to speed up its adoption of innovative technologies. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. She talked about those studies with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. All right, Stephanie, and we have a couple interesting reports to talk about this week, both dealing with various aspects of the defense acquisition system and DOD's planning cycles. Let's let's start with this new one last week from the uh, Atlantic Council's Commission on, on Defense Innovation. I guess one of my takeaways there was a, a lot of what they had to say kind of dovetails with the same topics that we're seeing from the folks who are examining PPBE reform, things like consolidating program elements and dealing with reprogramming authorities and streamlining the whole budgeting system. So, I mean, I guess it's encouraging that there's some consensus developing out there on what needs to be done. But what were some of your takeaways from from their interim report? Sure. Thanks, Jared. And, and thanks for, for raising this. You know, the, the Atlantic Council has this commission, and it's the Commission on Defense Innovation Adoption. And what they've identified as their mission is to accelerate DOD's ability to adopt cutting-edge tech. Um and then to deliver high-impact operational solutions to the warfighter. This is an interim report. It's got 10 main recommendations. Some of them are of high interest to industry. And and what's interesting about this commission is that it's a mix of former government officials as well as current industry officials. And so there is a flavor you'll see throughout this interim report of, you know, practicality, um, which, you know, Flash to bang in terms of requirements to fielding innovation has been a much admired subject over the last, you know, however long, two decades. Um, but this is the first report where I've really seen them talk about how do you then adopt innovation. And so my takeaways really, uh, some of the recommendations that we're particularly interested in would be, you know, strengthening the alignment of capital markets to um, the outcomes that you want to achieve. And so there's a lot of um, talk about um, venture capital, et cetera, in the report. There's also two other areas where, you know, in talking to PSC members, they're very interested. One is establishing a bridge fund to successfully um, move demonstrated technology into the field, which is that valley of death oftentimes we talk about. This is a bridge fund for that. And then the other one of high interest to us is how to modernize the requirement system. If if you know um, from, from experience the JSIDS process of DOD, it is arcane. It is constantly refreshed and added to, there's nothing streamlined about it. And so those are the ones that we're looking at with with a high interest. And very top down. Uh, I think one of the things that the, the council was focused on here, or the commission was focused on here, was coming up with things that are implementable relatively soon. How would you say they did on that in terms of coming up with recommendations that Congress and DOD can take and run with in the near term? Yeah, so the timing of this interim report was no accident, right? It's mid-April. It's the time where you send legislative proposals over for House and Senate Armed Services Committees for the appropriators to look at. So in terms of what Congress can do, there is a lot for them to take away from this report. Whether or not they choose to do it is another question. Um, But what I'm looking forward to is this final report from the commission that's coming out in September. And I hope they do reach out to PSE, other associations, our member companies, to really come up with case studies that support and led, lend um, evidence to what they're trying to do here. Because I think a lot of times it's a short report. It's only 20 pages. It's got 10 recommendations. Um, but you've got to have support for it, um, evidence, data, et cetera. And I think that's what they're going to spend their time on. And that's what I'm looking forward to. 
By contrast, the other study we want to talk about today is not 20 pages. It's nearly 900 when you combine uh, all, all the academic paper, all the academic study and FFRDC study that went into the DoD contract finance study. First time since I think 1985 the department has mm-hmm. taken a deep dive on this particular issue. How'd they do? So we have been watching this contract finance study since it was. Re- Um, mentioned in 2019, there was a GAO report that recommended that they undertake this study. Because you're right, the last time there was a comprehensive look at contract finance at DOD, it was 1985, and a lot has changed in 30 years. And so, you know, we looked at it, um, to be honest, uh, I think it's a bit narrowly focused. It's not sort of the the areas where we at PSC would have emphasized that they look at, and, and it's the changing dynamics of the business environment when you look at industry consolidation and where companies can find investment, that landscape has changed. And I'm not sure that the report gets at that piece of it. I hope we can have follow-on discussions about this contract finance report. We're actually here. Um, <laughs> PSC is having its annual conference at the historic Greenbrier in, in uh, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. And we're, we have some folks from DOD who will be here. And I hope to, to catch them on the margins and have a little discussion about where we go from here. A lot of focus in the report on on the need to kind of expose and gather more data on and do better management of the lower tiers of the supply chain within DOD. You know, the the flavor I got from the report is DOD has a very good understanding of its direct suppliers, its prime contractors, and they are financially pretty healthy. And there's just a lot less that is known or understood about those lower tiers. Yeah, we've been talking a lot with DOD about supply chain illumination is is the phrase that they used to use Mm. um, and sort of unpacking what the supply chain looks like. Um, Without privity of contract, DOD really doesn't have the ability to go into the sub tiers and and, and sort of look into what they're contributing within the final outcome or the final capability that's fielded. So I do think, you know, we have some efforts underway. Defense Logistics Agency is doing something right now to really unpack supply chains. It's going to be a while before we have sufficient data, I think, that we can act on. Um, But that isn't to say we shouldn't keep going, because I think supply chain illumination to make sure that progress payments, for example, that are going to primes flow down to the subs, particularly the small businesses who depend on these contracts. Um, And so, yeah, I think you're right that there is a lot to be done in supply chain. Um, And and this is just, you know, hints at it, but I I think we really need to, to... get a, a broader and more deep effort underway. The The report to me came across as a little bit dismissive of industry's concerns about budget instability and, and the financial impact that that working with the government can have on some companies. The, the, the overall conclusion they seem to come to is, hey, you guys are making money. Everything's fine. Stop complaining. I'm, I'm being a little bit flip with that. But I mean, do, do, they, do they have a point when they point to the general overall good health of of those prime contractors? So I come at it from a slightly different perspective, Jared. Mm -hmm. I come at it from, I think this report spends a lot of time talking about manufacturers and the products domain. Yeah. You know, we're professional services contractors, right? So we look at the services perspective and I would encourage DOD to to look more um, holistically at the defense industrial base. There are companies that are doing quite well, but I think one thing when you look at studying contract finance, it is about the primes, but it's also about the subs and what's flowing, what arrangements or teaming arrangements are allowable, et cetera. Um, and this is this is something both my, my boss, David Berto, CEO, president of PSC, and that I have often said, which is, you know, we don't really 
reward small businesses for doing well or for going over time because they have these small business set-asides. Um, but once they graduate, some of them hate that phrase, but once they graduate outside of their small status, they sort of fall into this abyss um, in many cases. And so I think when, if I were queen for a day um, and wanted to redo the contract finance study, I would take a, a stronger look at the de defense industrial base across the board, both manufacturers and service providers. But I would also look at what incentives are we creating to make sure the small businesses want to enter this market, have the forecasting, um, you know, demand that makes them viable and want them, you know, to be part of this, this industrial base, but then also how to reward them for growth. How do we encourage them um, beyond, beyond just staying small? And I guess back to one of your original points, you know, it, it would be good if we didn't wait another 30 years to do the next study. Well, what's the best way to make sure that this continues to be a topic of at least conversation and, and research and study and reform? Yeah, I think there's openness to that. If you go back to the 2019 GAO report, it wasn't just that DAO, you know, assess uh, DOD's policies about defense industry, but refresh it periodically. Now, I don't think I'd have to go look at the report again. I don't think it said how often that periodicity should be, but I think there's openness at the department to go, all right, so now we've done this big contract finance report. Um, let's go ahead and pull some of the threads. And I think that's where you know, associations like PSC can really provide data, anecdotes, um, information that maybe weren't addressed in this, in this report, all 900 pages of it. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required 
black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or 
maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu, did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You wanna think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kinda see all of that. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.